up on today's show, the final UCP leadership debate went in Edmonton last night. Any winners? Any losers? Any knockout punches? Back to school tomorrow all across the province. Exciting time, an anxious time for a lot of kids. And Mikhail Gorbachev, complicated legacy. Yeah, so I mean, all in all, uh, it was a it was a well run debate, and I think you know I got a text from a listener who also watched the debate last night. Ron says, "Good morning, Shay. Yes, I agree entirely with you. It was a really good debate, a good format. Nobody really won or lost, but we got to hear lots of their opinions and their ideas on how to go forward. It was a good job. I agree. I think in terms of the debate, we've seen some real train wrecks of debates lately, right? You remember that one the Conservative Party of Canada tried to do federally? Uh, it was just awful. It was it was." It was embarrassing, really. Um, this one last night was pretty good. I thought it was, you know, in terms of debates, it, it didn't end up with a bunch of people yelling at each other, which is part of the problem. And, uh, yeah, I, as far as debate formats go, I like that one. I hope they stick with it. Uh, but winners or losers, not sure. Let's chat now with uh, Melissa Cowett, who is a Western Canadian public policy professional and the principal of MC Consulting. Uh, Melissa, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Shay. Yeah, overall, what did you think? I mean, let's start with just the format of the debate. Interesting that they got to choose who they engaged with. I thought it worked quite well. Yeah, and it, it really allowed the candidates to take a more strategic approach to who they were debating with. If you'll remember the first debate um, in Medicine Hat a few weeks back, a lot of the candidates, maybe still in denial about Danielle Smith's lead, chose her to debate with. And what that did is that really only gave her more of a platform to talk about her ideas and actually ended up showing her as the front runner of the debate. So it was very interesting. A lot of the candidates opted not to give her that opportunity, yeah. recognizing that she she is doing very well with membership and is probably the front runner in this race at this time. Yeah, and the format, like you say, really lends itself to like I don't I'm not alleging any collusion that the candidates got together and decided to sort of freeze her out, but that ultimately was the effect because like you say, nobody invited her to the dance, so she was sort of forced by and large to sit on the sidelines until her turn came up. Absolutely. And you ended up hearing actually from candidates that you didn't hear a lot from last time. So you heard a lot from Todd Lowen. You heard a lot from Sonny, from Ahir. Um, you know, interesting because if you look at the way that the format was set up, you could almost tell if you hadn't even been paying attention in this race who the front runners were because they weren't the ones that were given the opportunity to talk as much. So it was really, um, it was really those candidates that um, are vying for, you know, down ballot support that, that had the opportunity to chat more often, which you know, I think from a party building perspective is a good thing because it, it gives the membership an opportunity to see the entire bench strength of the party versus just the people that are at the top, because we know all of those people are important. And we always talk about knockout punches and winning points and the soundbite that everyone's going to remember. I don't know if there was one last night, Melissa. Did anything stand out to you? Did anybody win or lose this debate clearly in your mind? I don't think so. I mean, Ahir had made, um, or I, was it Lowen? I can't even remember now, had made a, a funny bullcrap joke. That was Ahir. Um, Ahir, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it set, set out to me. Um, the Really, the only kind of relatively big punch was um, the back and forth between Smith and Taves surrounding the Sovereignty Act. You know, Smith 
um, defending the Sovereignty Act as, as a way to just be treated fairly, like Quebec is within Confederation, and her going after Taves about some of the ideas that he's put forward on this topic and how they wouldn't work either. So it really was surrounding the, the defining ballot question in this race, which, which, which is Alberta's place in Canada and, and Sovereignty Act-adjacent uh, policy areas. It's interesting, though, Melissa, because like you say, um, I thought Taves did a pretty nice job of saying, OK, which one is it? Uh, which sovereignty act are you talking about? The version that really does nothing and just sort of sits there and says, We're, we've got a sovereignty act? Or is it the one that turns this province on its head and causes absolute chaos and causes investment and money to flee? But to me, those messages have been said before, right? I mean, by many, many people, ranging from the premier to all kinds of different um, analysts and pundits and talking heads. It doesn't seem to matter, though. That's the interesting thing. It doesn't seem to be changing the whole tone of this campaign. It It's still there. It's still the main talking point. It's not like people realize that Oh, okay, maybe this doesn't make any sense. It's still there. It's still there. And, you know, a lot of these other candidates have been behind the eight ball on recognizing where the sentiment is within the party right now. Smith came out with a bang, you know, months ago earlier in this campaign with this idea. She was the first person, whether you like this idea or not. It's not my favorite idea personally, but that's really irrelevant when it comes to political strategy. She came out with this idea. She was the first one to have a big idea that really resonated with membership. And so she's actually been able to let her foot off the gas a little bit on some of the rhetoric yeah. there. Of course, she still talks about some of these ideas, depending on what room she's in. But she's really been able to take the opportunity to um, to moderate her position in this campaign because she so early took that chance that really paid off for her. So I think that you see candidates like Taves trying to find sort of at the 11th hour of this race an issue like that that they can grab onto, so a defining issue that will really mobilize the membership. But, you know, from a strategic perspective, I think it is probably too late for something like that. So you do see them trying to sort of go for the support that Smith has appeared to already lock up. So so that that is definitely very interesting. But Taze is just more of a, um, he's more offering more of a consistent approach, which is, I think, a, a valuable perspective mm-hmm, for sure. sure. I think a lot of people really crave consistency in politics um, nowadays, but it's just it, it's opened up a can of worms. Many of the other candidates have jumped on it. And so it's really, I think, hard for for anybody to to compete with Smith when it comes to that. And a lot of talk about how what we're seeing now at this point is people jockeying for number two on the ballot. That's sort of what a lot, I mean, you got Taves and, and Smith, I think they're, they're still gunning to be the number one choice on a lot of ballots. Everybody else is trying to do the Stelmac, Redford, I'm second or third on the ballot, but you know what? That's enough to put me in the seat. How does that work? Just walk us through this um, preferential ballot system that they're using in this leadership race and why second place for, in some cases, might be just the ticket. Sure. So the way that members are voting in this race is that they will receive a ballot um, on Friday. They'll be they'll be mailed out and you'll have to rank from one to seven who you want in this race to win on the first ballot. You need a candidate needs to win with more than 50 percent of the vote. That's quite difficult to do because that means you need more than 50% of the people who vote to rank you as number one. So if that doesn't happen, we go down the ballot. So the lowest number of ballots drops off and you continue to go down. So really the, the candidates are hoping to lock up as much support as they can at each round. So for somebody like, for example, Schultz, who is maybe not 
as many people's first choice as Smith and Taves is enough of a candidate that could appeal to both Taves number two voters and Smith number two voters that she could end up locking up a lot of support on that second ballot and, um, you know, could potentially continue to, to rack up support as the ballot goes down. So if this thing goes to, you know, the fourth round, less polarizing candidates, as you mentioned, was the case with the Stelmack leadership election. Yeah, yeah. Less polarizing candidates can really lock up support just without making too many waves. So I think if we're looking at candidates that could be the dark horse or have that opportunity, from my perspective, it's really a race probably between Schultz and, and Gene, even though he wouldn't be considered as much of a dark horse because he's got more sure. of a history. But I think Schultz is that person to watch. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that... And, and I think she had some impressive moments yesterday, and I think Ahir got a little bit of praise for some of the things she did, especially around culture um, and the ministry that she used to be in charge of with Travis Taze. But it'll be interesting to watch. So do you anticipate, I mean, not like you said, ballots go out on the 2nd, uh, have to be returned by the 3rd, and the vote goes on the 6th of October. I mean, how much change do you think? Is everybody pretty much locked in at this point, Melissa? I think so. Um, I don't I think that if there were going to be any sort of big bang in policy, we would have seen it last night. Really, at this point, candidates are just going to work on making sure that all of the memberships they've sold vote. And it's really that get out the vote strategy at this point. Nobody there there will be no new members that can purchase um, memberships to be eligible in this race. So it's really just about locking up existing support and not doing anything silly right. before people put their ballots in the mail, right? Like not doing anything that would really turn people off, especially for somebody like Schultz, who does have that opportunity for, for second ballot support. Yeah, into the home stretch now. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Party's over as of tomorrow. It's back to school. Uh, a lot of kids are already back to school, but I think the big day, and you're talking about the big public systems in Calgary, Edmonton, and and most locations, uh, September 1st. So that is um, tomorrow. And uh, and you see the pictures all over social media, and the kids are all smiley, and they've got their new backpacks, and they're all ready to go to their first day, and it's great, and it's fantastic. And for a lot of kids, it's going to be a lot of fun. They're going to go back, and they're going to see their friends, and they're going to meet their teachers, and uh, you know what it's like. You remember that, right? It was an exciting time. It was also a very, very anxious time for a lot of kids. I think for any kid, there's always a bit of nervousness on the first day of school, and that's good. I mean, that's part of, you know, entering into new situations and new experiences, and you should be a little nervous, and and, and 99% of them are going to get through it just fine and be better for it. Some kids, though, I imagine there's a lot of anxiety. This is not a positive time of the year for some kids. I don't know what the percentage would be. I don't know how many, and I imagine there's a spectrum and a scale in terms of how intense the anxiety can be. But without question, I would think there is some anxiety for, well, pretty much all kids, but in some cases it may be quite bad. So we're going to find out. We're going to chat with Dr. Wendy Hogland, who is the Associate Professor of Developmental Science at the Department of Psychology at the University of Alberta. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for the invitation to join you. Yeah, you know, for a lot of kids, they they, they can't wait to get back to class. I, I never really understood those kids. <laughs> I wasn't in that group. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say I was necessarily anxious about going back, but I imagine for some kids, tomorrow is a day they have been dreading for a very long time. Yes, yeah, certainly for some children, they may be um, dreading that. And part of that can also be due to parents' own fears about children going back to yeah. school. Perhaps, care, you know, caregivers are worried about 
the friends that their children might need, or if children are starting preschool, caregivers may be worried about those new experiences that their child is going to have. For younger children, they, you know, part of that, those worries might be due to some of that separation anxiety they might be feeling from leaving their, their caregivers and not knowing what to expect. And, of course, older children who've already been in the school system might be anxious about, you know, the new teacher that they're going yep. to meet, wondering about who's going to be in their class, figuring out, you know, who their friends are going to be, where they might be eating lunch. So, it's you know, it's normal for a lot of kids to feel anxious about these sort of new experiences that they haven't had for a bit. And, you know, as a parent and as somebody who might have kids or a grandparent, you got you got grandkids going back to school tomorrow. We know there's all kinds of different uh, setups and situations out there. I guess step one here, Doc, the first thing you need to do is talk to the kid and find out how they're feeling about it, right? Find out if there is some anxiety. Yes, exactly. You want to ask the children how they're feeling. You don't want to lead them with with uh, the conversation and saying, oh, you must be anxious about going back to school. Check in and ask them how they're feeling. And then once they identify their feelings, you want to be able to sort of validate how, they, how they're feeling. If they say they're feeling a little bit worried, say, I understand you're feeling worried. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you might be worried? And once you get that conversation rolling about why they might be worried or feeling anxious, then you can start um, identifying some ways to sort of deal with those with those issues and, and come up with some strategies for how children could manage those feelings of being worried or anxious once they're on their way to school or, at, or they're at school. Yeah, and how do you do that, Doc? Because I'm, I'm sure it's not... It's not one size fits all. I mean, uh, there's going to be different reasons for the anxiety, or is there a sort of general practice or general recommendations you can make that sort of will help a child deal with anxiety, no matter what the cause might be? Yes. Well, you know, first of all, is the conversation, and then really focusing on sort of um, positive aspects. So, if children have you know felt anxious before about going to school. But they did really well. You want to praise them for you know, those sort of brave behaviors that they were engaged in and sort of what worked. And you want to help them sort of revisit times when maybe they were feeling anxious or worried and, and sort of what helped and that they were able to sort of get through that. You want to recognize the feelings, but you don't want to dwell on that, that um, sort of anxiety feeling so that they become sort of in this, you know, ruminative circle about uh, just focusing on the anxiety. You want to focus a little bit on the positive as well. And some of those strategies for younger children, you can engage in some role-playing activities. And so having them sort of practice with you about what might happen the day that they're walking into school, you know, what would be some strategies that they could do so that they have these sort of tools in their, in their head for when they um, enter these situations, that they have some strategies that they can rely on. And I think one of the big ones, and, and this is the biggest fear, I think, for a lot of parents, and I, I don't know how much it happens. I mean, I know it does. I mean, I had kids go through the system. And we encountered it from time to time. That's bullying. And I know you've done a lot of work around that. And I think if you're a kid who's been bullied and that's your experience in school, uh, those are the kids I'm thinking of that just don't want to go back tomorrow. They know that they've had two months of not having to put up with the torment and the misery, and it all starts up again tomorrow. What do you do with a kid like that? Yeah, and so those are um, certainly difficult um, reasons for children to not want to be to school at school. And, you know, part of that is having caregivers need to approach the school. The schools need to be on board with the teacher and the principal and thinking about ways that they can help support those children or youth who might have been experiencing um, bullying in the past. And we know that, you know, finding a friend and really ensuring that your child or youth have a, a key friend at school that could support them and stand up for them. And we need to, you know, all um, children and youth and adults in the school system need to be able to stand up and support children who might be experiencing bullying. And so it's not just 
um, for that individual child who's experiencing bullying, but we really need the whole community to be supporting that child so that there are resources available for them. Things can be, you know, that caregivers can um, ask the teacher about sort of strategies for supporting that um, child in the school, you know, helping that child also identify who they can go to uh, if they're experiencing forms of bullying and, you know, helping children, all children and youth in the school and adults sort of recognize bullying behaviors and how we can um, identify and stop those. We need you know, children to stand up and be, you know, typically what some of the people call sort of upstanders rather than bystanders. Excellent point. Are, are, are we getting there? Is that happening? I mean, we've seen so much talk around this topic for so long now. Are things getting better? Are we having a better understanding? And, you know, as a community, having a better recognition of what are role is in, in dealing with this? Uh, I certainly think we're getting better. Um, but nonetheless, I think that it also gets minimized because um, sometimes adults might think that we've, you know, dealt with bullying or that it's just, you know, typical conflict that children and youth might be having. But we know that when it's repetitive, there's sort of a social imbalance in that relationship and that it's not resolved over time, um, that those are bullying behaviors. And we want to really um, help Children and adolescents recognize what the, you know bullying is. I think that there's been a bit of um, a shift in really um, the focus on bullying towards thinking more about kindness. How can we support yeah. kind behaviors in children and adolescents? And that really needs to be sort of that shift in the language rather than um, always talking about sort of bullying behaviors, but really thinking about how we can be kind and supportive of one another. And that is um, sort of one of the key ways that research suggests that we can um, help stop bullying behaviors. One of the things you mentioned earlier, and I, and I want to come back to it, is a lot of the anxiety that some kids might be feeling, and not the bullying stuff, I mean, obviously that's, but some of it you said might be because of the parents and their anxieties and their concerns. How can you limit putting that onto your kid? Because you're not doing it consciously. How can parents yeah. sort of um, insulate their kids from the anxiety that they're feeling as the little ones head back? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think that care you need to check in on yourself and think about how you're feeling. That's not always so easy, but think about, you know, how are you feeling about your child heading back to school? If you are starting to feel a little bit anxious, you know, you want to reach out. Um, there's a, you know, there's a lot of sort of self-help things that you could find on the internet, but talking to another um, friend or another caregiver or even, uh, you know, talking with your doctor is sometimes strategies. Sometimes ways of dealing with that anxiety might be reaching out to the teacher or the principal of your school so that you're familiar with sort of that routine of what's going to happen at school. You know, once we sort of know that routine and um, sort of those rituals that might happen at school, it sort of helps lessen some of that anxiety because you know what to expect. Yeah. And so that's a way also of sort of helping children and so that you're not sort of ruminating on what is the unknown, but really focusing on um, ways that you can sort of understand what might be happening or what might be that routine for your child in the school. Yeah, it's the unknown. I think that, I mean, it, things will get better as we go along. The first day is tough and we've all been through it, whether it's the first day of school, first day of a new job, it doesn't matter. The first day causes yeah. some anxiety, but it will get better, right? I mean, that's the message. Um, generally, yes. You know, once you're, you've been there, but, but you don't want to promise children that it will be better. Yeah. You want to, you know, um, help them think about ways that they will be able to manage that anxiety because you don't want to minimize those feelings, but yet you, you don't want to sort of support that encouragement right. of yeah. always feeling um, anxiety. But you want to be kind of realistic in, you know, what might be those experiences for that child. And, you know, when they're coming home from school, just sit down and ask them, you know, 
how was their day and How'd really focus on things that, you know, maybe went well. And then if you would, if they identify things that maybe didn't go so well, then you can talk through those and think about strategies for next time or for the next day at school. Great advice, doctor. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. So last night, news broke that Mikhail Gorbachev had died at the age of 91. Now, it's really interesting in the time since the announcement was made to hear the different reactions and the different analysis of his legacy, because it's not 100% cut and dried. I think there's different perspectives, uh, depending on where you were and what you remember. And, and I mean, let's be honest, there's some revisionist history around some of what happened there. What we do know for sure, um, he was the last leader of the Soviet Union, right? I think that 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 we do know <laughs> um before it collapsed now then you've got his his involvement in the cold war and ending the cold war some people credit him with ending the cold war some people credit him with bringing down the iron curtain and um changing the face of the world um how much of a role did he play in that obviously he was front and center and like i say for people of my age um one of the most influential world leaders of my life no question absolutely and uh, was in power over a tremendous transformation on the global stage. So let's get some details on exactly how do you characterize what he did and his involvement in world history. We're going to chat with Marcus Kolga, who is the founder of disinfowatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Uh, Marcus, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Shay. This legacy uh, of Mikhail Gorbachev, it's not cut and dried, is it? I mean, I've heard all kinds of different analysis, and it seems like your perspective can sort of change what you think he did or didn't do. I mean, how can it be so complicated? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a real mixed bag of nuts, and it all depends on your, your perspective. Uh, and there are many of them when it comes to Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, look, this is a, 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 the, the last Soviet leader, as you mentioned. He came to power in 1985. The situation in the Soviet Union was pretty dire. Um, it had entered a, a period of long stagnation under Leonid Brezhnev. Uh, the economy was on the brink of collapse. Uh, and so uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was required to do something about it. And he, he recognized the fact that things were not going well for the Soviets. And so uh, he introduced uh, some reforms, uh, perestroika, which is a term yep. that your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with. Glasnost. Glasnost, of course. Perestroika was a liberalization of uh, the, the Soviet economy to try and get it going again. Uh, Glasnost uh, was an opening up of social liberalization. Um, there were limited, uh, it was an opening of, of freedom of expression, of cultural identity, specifically in those nations occupied by the Soviet Union. And so he thought that by introducing these reforms, that he could actually uh, preserve the Soviet Union to maintain it. And that was, um, you know, if we're looking at his legacy, that was his primary objective was to uh, to keep that union together, to keep the Soviet uh, imperium uh, as one whole. Now, the perspectives in the West, of course, on his legacy is that he's a hero. He ended the Cold War. And right. you know, there's, a, there's some truth to that. I mean, he presided over uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. He was a leader when that was happening. Um, when the walls came down in Berlin, he didn't send in the Soviet forces as Leonid Brezhnev did in Prague in 1968. 
And so to a certain degree, it was indeed a peaceful process, this transition to um, you know, a, a window of democracy that, of course, ended in 2000 when Vladimir Putin came to power. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there's a, there are truths to that, uh, that Western perspective about him. Now, if you're one of the millions of people who is living in Central or Eastern Europe, specifically those countries occupied by the Soviet Union, you're going to have a different perspective. Yeah. My own parents fled uh, the Soviet occupation after the Second World War. And, um, you know, when when all of this was happening at the end of the 80s, when, uh, you know, the Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, Georgians, were, Ukrainians were rising up and, and demanding more freedom and independence from the Soviet Union, uh, Vlad, or, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev sent in the troops. Uh, he killed dozens of people in Latvia, in Lithuania and in Georgia in January of 19. 19- 91. And so from that perspective, I mean, he, they see him as a as just another Soviet leader, a totalitarian repressive leader who tried to um, subjugate them. And then, of course, there's the Russian perspective as well. Going, I went through the uh, Russian media just this morning, and there are characterizations of, of Mikhail Gorbachev being a grave digger of the Soviet Union. Um, the Russian perspective is that he was a failure, a, uh, a loser, if you will, who failed to maintain the Soviet Union. And Vladimir Putin himself has repeatedly identified uh, 1991 and Mikhail Gorbachev as, as being a failure as, and the, the, the breakdown of the Soviet Union as being one of the greatest geopolitical disasters in history. And it's one of the reasons, quite frankly, we see this war in Ukraine today. It's Vladimir Putin trying to reverse what happened right. in 1991 and pulled together the Soviet Union. So, yeah, a mixed bag of, of reactions to, uh, to, uh, to Mikhail Gorbachev and his legacy. It's kind of interesting because, you know, I'm just reading U.S. President Joe Biden's statement. He says, for example, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was a man of remarkable vision. As leader of the USSR, he worked with President Reagan to reduce our two countries' nuclear arsenals, which he did. That was big. After decades of brutal repression, he embraced democratic reforms. But as you say, there's a school of thought that he didn't necessarily embrace democratic reforms. He just couldn't manage to maintain the the Soviet Union the way that it was. And, I mean, did he see that and pivot and become this Western hero of democracy? I mean, how did that happen where if he that wasn't his goal, that wasn't his intent, was he just smart enough to recognize the opportunity? I mean, how did that work? Look, I think, uh, you know, there was a, a columnist at the Washington Post, George F. Will, who yesterday characterized this, all of this as, 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 as Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, that he stumbled into his greatness. I mean, he wasn't really aware. He wasn't very, he certainly, certainly wasn't a visionary. Um, he wasn't aware of, of the circumstances that he was in. Uh, he was, for many years before he came to power, he was at the tip of, of the Soviet nomenclatura, he had no real understanding of what was going on around him. And so, you know, when we talk about uh, Gorbachev as some great democratizer or liberalizer of, of, uh, of the Soviet Union, it's, it's simply not true. When, uh, when he opened up the, the Soviet Union in, in the late 1980s, um, he, uh, he was doing this because he believed that by opening it up, he would preserve communism. Because he was a communist. He was a right. Marxist-Leninist till the day he died. As a very young man, yeah, for his whole life. And, and that continued, and he continued to be so. Um, you know, and I think that his policy of opening was based on um, his observations of what happened in Prague in 1968. He believed that by allowing 
the citizens to express themselves, that they would that would lead to a true form of communism. It wasn't meant to um, grant these people freedom, the freedom of expression, but again, to preserve communism. So, uh, you know, I really wouldn't say that he was a, a man of, of any sort of particular vision. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, he was made, just there. In fact, he was just he just happened to be there at the time. I'm not saying that you could put anyone there, but but he really didn't do too much. You know, it, he's more known and I guess he's heroic for what he didn't do. Like I mentioned, when the wall fell in Berlin, he didn't send in the tanks. And even though there was bloodshed in Latvia and Lithuania in January of 91, um, you know, ultimately, after, you know, before the coup happened in August 1991, um, he didn't send in more tanks. He didn't, you know, I think that if Vladimir Putin had been in that position, um, he would have engaged in a full-scale right. war. He didn't do that. And I think for that, I think the world can uh, can certainly uh, express its appreciation for, for what he, in fact, did not do uh, instead of what he did do. Yeah, I was reading last night some people saying that, you know what, the person who actually did more, the person who deserves a little more credit in this area is actually his the guy who came after Boris Yeltsin, he 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 was much more engaged and involved in some of the things that Gorbachev is known as being the the guy who implemented it in the Soviet Union. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Look, like I said earlier, Gorbachev tried to maintain the Soviet Union tooth and nail right. yeah. until the very end, until August of 1991. Um, after when he was at that point, he was basically removed from power. Boris Yeltsin came to the forefront as the president of Russia itself. And uh, and he did far more to grant freedom and independence to the occupied nations of that. Uh, there were the nations that were occupied by the Soviet Union and uh, and gave hope. He opened he completely opened up Russia and Russia um, for that 10 year period when when Boris Yeltsin was president was one of the most open and liberal and democratic uh, countries in the entire world. They had more newspapers per capita than any other country at that point. And that has completely changed, of course under Vladimir Putin. And one of, uh, you know, Yeltsin's unfortunate legacies is that he actually chose uh, Vladimir Putin to succeed him over another wonderful pro-democracy uh, opposition activist, Boris Nemtsov. And uh, that's one of the reasons we see this terrible war that we're seeing today in Ukraine. It's fascinating. I mean, they always say history is messy, and this is a, a living example of that. I mean, <laughs> can you sum up Mikhail Gorbachev's legacy, like you said, it's very complicated. There's a lot of different, and it all depends on your perspective, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah, look, I think his legacy of de-escalating uh, the nuclear, potential nuclear, any potential nuclear conflict for, with the U.S., I mean, um, that's certainly a, a positive sign. The fact, again, that he didn't engage in any sort of full-scale war against the uh, nations that were occupied by the Soviet Union, uh, you know, I think that's a, a positive uh, a positive. Um, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of commentators are forgetting this morning is that, um, unfortunately, in 2014, when Vladimir Putin first invaded Ukraine and occupied Crimea and, and eastern Ukraine, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev came out and and thanked uh, Vladimir Putin and, and said that had he been in the same position as Putin, he would have done the same thing. And so he congratulated Putin for hmm. for that. I think that's unfortunate. Now, there are some uh, some reports, uh, mostly anecdotal, that are coming out that over the past few months, uh, Gorbachev did express concern about uh, Putin's invasion. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, in 2014, he, he clearly demonstrated that, you know, the, the, the freedom and democracy that the West has hailed him for as a hero uh, aren't completely true. So I think that we need to include that in, 
in the legacy when we're talking about uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah, in, in the warts and all, <laughs> look at it. Um, yeah. Marcus, always fascinating. Thank you so much for your insight. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 